Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is the FT's investment banking correspondent, Daniel Schaefer, our retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff, and also Chris Thompson, a capital markets reporter. We'll be talking about three topics today. Lloyd's Banking Group's chief executive, Antonio Hortosaria, has said in an interview with the Financial Times that the government's help to buy scheme is very positive but needs to be accompanied by big changes in the property planning laws. Secondly, we look at JP Morgan and the first quarterly loss that the bank has had under Chief Executive Jamie Dimon. And finally, the increasing alignment between European sovereign bonds and banks. First, back to that story about Lloyd's. Charlene, we interviewed Mr. Hortosorio at the end of last week and published the interview in Monday's paper. He said quite a lot of interesting things, but one of the most headline-grabbing, I suppose, was his views on help to buy. This is the UK signature scheme to get the mortgage market going. And it was surprising in some ways what he said, I suppose, because he's been very supportive of the scheme overall and continues to be. But he was making the point to us that it wouldn't work on its own. It was potentially cause a bubble in the housing market unless there were changes on the other side if you like. Yeah I mean he was basically addressing the key concern that's kind of come out in the last couple of weeks that this could create a housing bubble in some places if it's not backed up by supply. So the scheme has definitely reignited demand. We've seen anecdotal evidence of banks saying big increases in people looking for mortgages, particularly first-time buyers. You know, it's working from that side to get things moving. But one problem is that there potentially is not the supply of properties to back up that demand. And obviously with that imbalance could lead to quite a dangerous increase in house prices. And that was the point he was making that now, you know, yes, the scheme's great, it's working, it's an important thing to have done, but that the discussion now needs to move to that idea of whether there is the supply coming through, feeding through, so you sort of rebalance those two forces. So That supply and demand equation. Just to to recap on Help to Buy, this is the second phase of this scheme, which was introduced earlier in the year. It's been accelerated, I think, the second phase by a few months. And just to summarise it, I mean, it basically makes it easier for anyone to to buy a home with a smaller deposit? Yeah, basically it offers a government-backed guarantee on a certain amount of the loan. So banks are more able to offer sort of high loan-to-value loans, those that require small deposits of, say, about 5%. And these loans had been really withdrawn quite severely from since the financial crisis. Banks very wary about lending at those kind of high levels, partly because they're worried about house prices falling again, partly because they're so expensive because they have such tough capital demands on them. So this makes it easier for those banks to lend at those levels. And it's it's been pretty popular with borrowers, apparently. Not so much. I mean, a lot of the banks have actually been quite wary. They have all signed up now. Um, Yeah, that's been quite interesting, hasn't it? There's there's obviously a very gung-ho 
approach from government over this. And it does seem that the initial reluctance of of many of the banks and building societies has been overcome, at least in terms of their their stated support for the schemes, whether or not they'll actually end up doing much business. Yeah, and and they're pricing the loans fairly high. They're about, you know, 5% at least for a two-year fixed-rate mortgage. So, you know, I don't think we're going to see a huge amount of lending. I mean, Lloyd's, RBS are expected to have some quite significant uplifts, particularly around first-time buyers. And actually, that was another point that Mr. Otero-Sorio made that, you know, the, the scheme should really be helping first-time buyers. The scheme itself has a, a threshold of £600,000. That's the property value that you can get these government-backed loans on. And there has been some discussion within Lloyd's. We understand that that could potentially be too high and if you brought that down a bit it would focus the scheme very much outside London outside the southeast and first-time buyers which is where it should be focused should be well we'll see how this scheme evolves whether there are any tweaks to it whether the government tweaks it or whether perhaps more likely the financial policy committee at the Bank of England takes a look and and judges what what needs to be changed if anything yeah I mean we think it's probably unlikely that they're going to do anything in the short term given that you know the government is so proud of the scheme and keen that it has a a fair shot you know I think people think it's very unlikely that there'll be any sort of u-turn on this but they have given the FPC those powers to monitor it and just ensure that it's not creating sort of unsustainable price rises in the property market very good let's go across the pond to the US and JP Morgan was last week reporting its quarterly results, Daniel, and it came out at the end of the week with the first ever quarterly loss under Chief Executive Jamie Dimon. Was this a shock? I wouldn't call it a shock because people were expecting them to come out with higher litigation reserves, which is the main driver, really the only driver for the loss they made in the quarter. So people were braced for them coming out with a multi-billion litigation reserve, but they didn't think it would actually lead to a loss. They still thought they would be able to to make a small profit. For Jamie Dimon, really, it's like a personal blow in that he managed to get JP Morgan through the crisis without a single quarterly loss. So since he started as chief executive and chairman in 2005, the bank has never made a loss. And rather ironically, the reason for this loss now is partly due to JP Morgan's strength during the crisis, because its very strength led it to do the acquisitions of Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual, which the US government wanted them to buy because they were about to fail, really, without the takeover. And it is now the past mortgage businesses of both Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual, that, that's JP Morgan's main problem in terms of the, the litigation it is facing. So so Jamie Dimon's being punished for being a really nice man back in the crisis and helping <laughs> helping everybody out. Shareholders seem to agree with that view actually, don't they? they yeah. They're not I had a quick look at the shares on, on Friday they were they were actually slightly up on the day. There's, there's no yeah. sense really that investors blame Jamie Dimon for all of this fallout and certainly don't have any yeah. great desire to punish the bank no. or, or him personally for it. Yeah. I guess we journalists like to be sceptical and critical about these things but in this case I think it's really, that's the way it is. Shareholders see it like that. They don't blame him for the loss and there's also a sense of shareholders asking the question why 
the DOJ and other law enforcement institutions in, in the US, like the Federal Housing Finance Agency, are coming out with this raft of litigation now, five years after the crisis and things happened, and why, why they are sort of, in a way, changing their policy towards the banks and becoming much stricter now. There is a school of thought that says they're going personally after Jamie Dimon because he was such an ardent defender of the banks generally and, and critic of, of new regulations post-crisis, that he has become the poster boy for that more bullish tone and needs to be slapped down. You'd have thought that if that were the case and that there was therefore going to be far more litigation directed at JP, then investors wouldn't like that either, you know, regardless of how good a banker he is, if he was going to be a, a problem for the institution, then they wouldn't they wouldn't welcome that. Yeah, that's definitely the case. But they I think they still value the way he leads JP Morgan in terms of the op- operative business more highly than they do sort of criticize him being too outspoken or having been too aggressive with the regulators in the past. But the, the problem for Jamie Dimon now is given how outspoken he has been in the past, he now can't be seen as being too aggressive with the regulators now and he, he'll have to find a way to settle with them. And he can't, he can't actually get into a position where he will fight this out in court because he's he would be fighting against the US government in, in, in a sense and and that would be a high risk strategy for him to do and it could also if we wouldn't try everything to get to a settlement it could also lead some of the law enforcement institutions to, to, to actually criminally charge JP Morgan in the end and that that could be a much much harder position for JP Morgan to be in than they are now. So just a final thought on this. There was quite a lot of chatter a a couple of weeks ago about him leading an effort to try and settle all outstanding litigation against the bank in these areas for about $11 billion, which is obviously a huge amount of money. But in short, that would be the best way to go because it would clear the decks and give investors the certainty that they would want going forward. I think it would be mostly covered by the litigation reserves they have now. I mean, they've got an astonishing amount of $23 billion of litigation reserves now. And so so the 11 billion would surely be covering that and so in a way that would be the best solution for the bank if they if they would push through a settlement with all the the, the regulators on the housing related issues. Yeah. And in a word is Jamie Dimon safe as chief executive and chairman? I think he's definitely safe as chief executive. And the question is whether there will be a new debate about his dual role of chairman and chief executive. And I think that which will he managed be, to fend off last yeah, year. Yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah. And, and and this year as well. And the question will be, it really depends on how he'll, he'll be able to steer through these whole litigation issues now and whether he'll manage to, to get to a good settlement. If he does that, I think he'll be safe, mm. even in his dual role. Okay. And But if not, he'll be threatened in that. Okay, thank you, Daniel. We should move on to our third and final topic for the day, which is the increasing connection really between Eurozone banks and their sovereign governments through holdings of of sovereign bonds. So, Chris, in a way, this is not news because we've been monitoring the closeness between banks and, and governments for the past few years, ever since particularly the European Central Bank boosted banks' liquidity with their so-called longer-term refinancing operation. And we saw so much of this new money that flowed into the banks go back into into governments through sovereign debt investments. What your latest data shows, though, is that this has been 
a steadily rising connection between the banks and governments over the past couple of years. And it's it's rising month on month and it, virtually everywhere. It's continued to rise, which I think will have surprised a lot of people. The fates of nations' economies, governments and banks are becoming increasingly intertwined in the Eurozone. It has been rising month on month incrementally since the ECB made the decision in late 2011, early 2012 to pump in over a trillion euros into Europe's financial system. This is despite, however, many analysts, including those at the ECB, to try and break what they refer to as this sovereign bank nexus. That means if the sovereign gets in trouble, uh, the banks are going to get in trouble and vice versa. And yet, despite that pledge, this has only been getting worse. Yeah, as you say, it's been getting worse everywhere. But in Italy in particular, this, is, this has become very acute, hasn't it? Italian banks, uh, you know, as, as a proportion of their assets, you know, more than 10% is now held in, in government bonds. So what you have is this potential for this feedback cycle if there is an economic shock, whether at the government level or at the financial level. If it's at the government level, well, then it will feed back into the banks because the banks are such big players in government finances. And, and if there's a, there's a shock to any one of the banks, that could immediately hit the uh, Italian political scene. What I suppose is interesting in this, is, as you say, has been month-on-month increases everywhere, I think, apart from Greece among the periphery of the Eurozone. But it comes against a background of this so-called LTRO money gradually being repaid, doesn't it? Because we're down to, I can't remember the numbers, 600 and something billion, I think, of, right. of LTRO money. Yeah. yeah, which you'd have thought with that funding going down, you might have seen a, a reduction in, the, in, as you say, the, the sovereign bank nexus. Well, I mean, ideally you would have, but, but really, I mean, the banks, the incentive is to take on this sovereign debt because it's not risk-weighted, so you don't have to hold any capital against it. You get ECB money at, you know, 0.5% and you can invest it in some bonds issued by your government at a, at a much higher rate of interest. So that's it's a good carry trade yeah, for carry them. I there. mean, there yeah. is a kind of more cynical view, which is that banks will load up on the bonds of their national governments. And this is typically, obviously, the problem is with weaker mid-tier banks, particularly in the periphery, as a way of essentially holding the gun to the government's head and saying, hey, guys, listen, if we get in trouble, well, then our fates are intertwined. So you better do something to bail us out or you're going to be coming with us. Well, it's a timely reminder, actually, of what we mentioned, the nexus between Italian banks and their government. And obviously, one of the big bailout stories is going on right there with Monte di Paschi at the moment. So uh, we will see how all this pans out. But I mean, one thing is pretty certain, it's not going to start declining anytime soon, this nexus. And uh, if the LTRO system is is, uh, renewed, as a lot of people think, then it's probably going to intensify. Thanks very much for that, Chris. We should finish there. My thanks go to Daniel and Charlene and also to Chris for joining me. And thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by John Byrne Murdoch. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today.
Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.